Well, open your Bibles to Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58. And this will be this will be the final text from the book of Isaiah that that we go over. There is just so much more that that we could say uh, about Isaiah. We haven't covered it uh, nearly as well as it deserves. We could have looked at Isaiah 59 and talked about how that God alone can bring salvation. And in Isaiah 59 and verse 16, uh, it is described, his own arm brings salvation. And in verse 17, his righteousness upholds, he puts on righteousness like a breastplate and the helmet of salvation upon his head. Sounds very familiar to Ephesians chapter 6, right? Because Paul is quoting from Isaiah chapter 59. We could have talked about Isaiah 61 that Jesus stands up and reads in Luke chapter 4 and says applies to him. We could have read and studied from Isaiah 65, which talks about in verse 17, God creating a new heavens and a new earth. So many passages. So many passages to pull from. So much, so much to learn from the book of Isaiah. So powerful. I hope the time that we have spent together has been an encouragement to you and a help. And a help to you. I, I, I can't go on without saying a, a very sincere thank you to all of you uh, for all that you have done uh, for us. Uh, the uh, buffets for keeping us and everybody else for feeding us and, and taking care of us. Uh, we, we so appreciate all of your kindness uh, and I, I appreciate all of your encouraging words that, that you have said uh, to me at the end at the end of my lessons. Uh, the reason that, that Clay had such a bad week was because of his house guest this week. Uh, so I feel sorry for him because of that. Uh, I, I, we, we generally keep the, uh, the preacher whenever they come for a gospel meeting. I, I know that's not as easy as it seems. It, it really disrupts your life. And they, they all have been very gracious to us. And, and you have all been very gracious to feed us and, and to, to talk with us and to care for us. And we, we greatly appreciate that. And I, I pray that the Lord bless your work here, here in Jessup. As we go throughout Isaiah 58, I just want you to ask yourself this question. Is worship a delight? Is worshiping God something that we enjoy, something that we want to do, something that, that gives us pleasure and excitement? Oftentimes we have limited worship to the walls of the church building. But when you read the story of the Bible, the Bible is full of examples of people who are just thankful to God and stop in the middle of their day and worship. Genesis 24 and verse 26, the servant of Abraham has a prayer answered and he stops and worships God. Um, Jacob leans on the edge of his bed, chapter 47, in verse 31, and worships the Lord. 1 Samuel chapter 28, uh, Eli is depicted as worshiping uh, when God has sent Samuel unto him. Is worship a delight? Is it something that, that we do on a regular basis? 
As we look at Isaiah 58, this is one of the problems that the people have. You probably remember Jesus in Matthew 15 rebuking the Pharisees for their worship and interpretation of Scripture. And he quotes from Isaiah chapter 29 in verse 13, which says, Then the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their words and honor me with, their lip, with lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by road. Isaiah describes his people, and, and Jesus describes the people of his day. You're not worshiping me sincerely. You're not worshiping me from the heart. You're just worshiping me uh, out of tradition. You're coming because, well, I know I'm supposed to come, right? You're not coming because you love God and you want to worship and honor him. This is a problem in Isaiah's day. But are we worshiping God? Because we delight in in him. We have tried to talk about the book of Isaiah as a big overall picture a couple of times throughout the week. Again, chapters 1 through 39, who are you trusting in? Are you turning to God? Are you looking to him? And in chapters 40 through 66, which are written in order to prepare the people for captivity and to remind and to call the people in Isaiah 58 in order to worship in an acceptable way unto God. Let's begin this morning by simply reading the text. Let's read Isaiah 58 and get the text in front of us. Starting in verse 1. Cry loudly, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet and declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me day by day and delight to know my ways. As a nation that has done righteousness and has not forsaken the ordinance of their God, they ask me for just decisions. They delight in the nearness of God. Why have we fasted and you have not seen? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Behold, on the day of your fast, you find your desire and drive hard all your workers. Behold, you fast for contention and strife, and strife with a wicked fist. You do not fast like you do today, to make your voice heard on high. Verse 5. Is it a fast like this which I choose, a day for a man to humble himself? Is it for bowing one's head like a reed, and for spreading out sackcloth and ashes to <coughs> bed? Will you call this a fast, even an acceptable day to the Lord? Is this not the fast which I choose, to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry, and to bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then your light will break out like the dawn, and your recovery will speedily spring forth, and your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and He will answer. You will cry, and He will say, Here I am. If you remove the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of wickedness, 
And if I give, and if you give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will rise in darkness and your gloom will become like midday. And the Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire in scorched places and give strength to your bones. And you will be like a watered garden, like a spring of water which waters do not fail. Those from among you will rebuild the ancient ruins. You will rise up the age-old foundations. And you will be called the repairer of the breach, the restored streets in which to dwell. Verse 13. If because of the Sabbath you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day. And call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable and shall honor it, desisting from your own ways, from seeking your own pleasure, and speaking your own word, then you will delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth, and I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. As you look at the beginning part of the chapter, the people have a complaint with God. Remember we talked about back in Isaiah 1, the people were worshiping God. They were going to the temple service. It, it, it seems to be, once again, that they are showing the outward signs of worship in Isaiah 58. And they are blowing the trumpet. They're declaring the fast in the land. And there was only one day in Israelite history that you were required to fast, and that was the Day of Atonement. Sometimes the Jews did it. Uh, in order to turn from their sins on special occasions. But that was the only day that you were required to do that. And, and the people have a problem in verses 2 through 3. that They say, look, we're seeking God's face by day. We're, we're seeking to know God's ways. We're seeking to be obedient to Him. We're delighting in God's nearness. And yet in verse 3 they say, we've done all of that. And yet, we fast, and you're not paying attention to us. God, God, you're not listening to us. You're not doing anything for us. You're not noticing our worship in verse 3. God responds at the end of verse 3 and says, well, there's a reason. There's a reason I'm not noticing it. Because you're not worshiping in a correct way. You're worshiping. Just because, just by the outward appearances in verse 5. Oh yes, you're bowing your head like a reed, verse 5. Oh yes, you're covered in sackcloth and ashes. And the purpose of fasting was not just abstaining from food, but the purpose of fasting in the Old Testament was from turning away from your sins. God says you've got all the outward displays down right. But you're not living your life according to the pattern that I have called you in many ways, the problem that the people are making is that they're kind of worshiping God with the expectation of what can I get. Notice in, in verse three, 3, we fasted, but you haven't noticed. We've humbled ourselves, but you did not notice. God, are you not seeing us? Are you not paying attention? You know, in other words, they're treating God like a vending machine. God, we put in our quarter. We want our 
our candy bar of forgiveness back. We want our candy bar of redemption back. They're worshiping God for what they can get out of God. One of the things that we must remember is that worship should be a selfless thing. We do not come in order to satisfy our own pleasures and our own desires. We worship because of who God is and what He has done on our behalf. That's the reason we worship. We lift our arms up to Him. We honor and praise Him because of who He is. Worship is not about us. Worship is a selfless act which we remember what God has done on our behalf. What is one of, the, one, one of the main reasons we come together? A lot of times we do focus sometimes on, on you know, the preacher, the speaker, because that's the way we've, we've kind of ordered our service in some ways. Uh, but one of the main reasons, Acts 20 and verse 7, we come together is to remember the Lord's death. To partake of the Lord's Supper, to remember what He has done, to remember His selfless acts on our behalf. Worship is not about us, not about what the church can do for us. It's about what we can give to God. And while, sure, they're showing these outward signs of repentance in verse 5, in verse 3, God rebukes them because on the day of their fast, what are they doing? You're finding your own desire. You're not really turning away from what you want. You're still finding your own desire. You're driving hard all of your workers. You're still using it to advance your business there in verse 3. And you're fasting, verse 4. I find this fascinating. You're fasting for contention, strife, and to strike at one another. They're supposed to be worshiping, right? They're supposed to be fasting to repent of their sins, and yet they have contention and strife and jealousy and anger and bitterness among them. God says that's not worship. That's not what I require of you. You've got a problem. So what does God want of the people? Well, if you start looking in verse 6, God says, this is what I want in your fast. This is what I want in your worship. This is what's acceptable to me. In verse 6, to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free. You look back in verse 3, they're mistreating their employees. They're driving hard all of their workers. He says, no, let them go free on this day. You think about what worship often was for the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. You think about Exodus 20. Observe the Sabbath day. Why? Observe the Sabbath day because God created the world. But in Deuteronomy 5, when the Ten Commandments are re-given, he says, observe the Sabbath day. Well, why? He doesn't cite creation. Because you were delivered from Egyptian bondage. We worship in order to remember what God has delivered us from, what God has saved us from, how He has loosened the bonds of Satan. And what does the Hebrew author tell us in Hebrews chapter 12? He warns us about the sin that so easily entangles us, right? 
And, and so keep our eyes on Jesus and don't become entangled by sin. Loosen those bonds. One of the reasons that we come together is to remind ourselves how we have shaken free of the bonds of Satan and sin. And we're living our life for the Lord because of what He has accomplished on behalf of us. We must remember to break the bonds of wickedness. Isaiah 58 in verse 6. To let the oppressed go free. In verse 7, to care for others. To divide the bread with the hungry. To bring the homeless into the house. When you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. To have concern for other people. When you see those who are in need, when you see those who are hungry, help them, provide them with assistance, care for your fellow man. I find it remarkable that this list given in verse 7, the giving your, your food to the hungry, uh, to bringing the homeless into your house, the clothing the naked, is picked up by Jesus in Matthew chapter 25. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus depicts the final judgment. And he is seated on his throne and all nations are brought before him. And they are divided on the right and on the left. And in verse 34, Jesus speaks and says, Come, you who are blessed to the Father, to inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to, to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when do we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When do we see you sick and in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of the brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. And in the same way, at the end of the chapter, we see the opposite. Those who are judged, those who are condemned, are those who have not cared for those who are needy and those who are afflicted. What does James say in James 1? True religion is. But caring for the needy, caring for the afflicted, caring for the widow, caring for those and helping those who cannot help themselves. God says, this is what I desire from you. This is what I want from you. He, he says in verse 10 to give yourself to the hungry, to satisfy the desire of the afflicted, and then God will pour out his blessings upon them in verses 8 and 9. This is the actions that he wants of them. He doesn't want them to mistreat their employees. He doesn't want them uh, to hurt people. He wants them to be concerned and care for people and help any way that they can. Because, see, worship isn't about what we can get. It's about what we can do for others. Because in loving, if we truly love our brother as ourselves, then we will love our, our God whom we have not seen. God wants them to put away 
just the outward show of religion, to truly care about people. But I want you to notice verses 13 and 14. In verse 13, the Sabbath was your weekly worship service for Israel. If because of the Sabbath you turn your foot aside from doing your own pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and shall honor it, desisting from your ways, from seeking your own pleasures, and from speaking your own words. What picture is given here in verse 13? It's that there might be other things that you could be doing, right? But you know what is most important. And so you put aside the things that you want to do on the Lord's day and you focus entirely upon Him. And if you call that a delight, notice in verse 14, if you put aside your own desires, if you're just seeking to worship God, if you're seeking to be obedient to Him, then you will take delight in the Lord. Is worship a delight? Is it something that we want to do? Or is it something that we just do because of tradition? Well, this is the way I was raised. This is what I've known. Or no, I'm going. I'm going to worship God. I'm going because this is where I need to be. I'm going because this is what is required of me as a servant of God. Is our attitude toward worship? Come on, let's get it over with. Let's get it moving on. Or is our attitude toward worship, I'm so grateful to be here. I'm so grateful that my brothers and sisters can strengthen me in God. I'm grateful to remember the sacrifice of Jesus. I'm grateful to sing songs together. I'm grateful to pray together. I'm grateful to open God's Word and be refreshed by the message that it brings to us. Is worship a delight? Because if worship is not a delight, then our Lord will not be a delight to us. But if we turn aside from what we want and we're focused on God, then the Lord will be our delight. The Lord will be our joy. Turn your Bibles over to the book of Psalms. I want to look at two passages. Psalm 84, Psalm 84, and Psalm 122. We'll start in Psalm 84. Psalm 84, let's start in verse 1. This is the description of the psalmist's desire to worship God. Psalm 84, verse 1. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts! My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Look down, skip down to verse 10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand in the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents 
of wickedness. The psalmist here is depicted in Psalm 94. He loves worshiping God. He loves going to the temple. He loves being in God's presence. He would rather spend one day worshiping God in verse 10 than a thousand days outside doing whatever he wants to do. He loves the worship of God. He's driven by that. Is that the way that we are? Psalm 122. Psalm 122 in verse 1. The psalm ascribed to David in the heading says in verse 1, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. In this section of the book of Psalms, you'll probably see at the top of your Bible the title, The Songs of Ascent. These are often, historically we are told, sang by worshipers going up to Jerusalem, getting ready to worship God. They're excited to worship. They're thrilled to worship God. They're grateful for this opportunity. Is that the picture, our picture and our attitude of worship? And we're grateful that it's the Lord's day. We're grateful for the opportunity to worship Him. We're grateful for the time to gather together on Wednesday night. Is worship truly a delight for us? You know, one of the things that is interesting to me when I read the Bible is that ideal Israel, redeemed Israel, is an is depicted as loving to worship God. The true people of God, in other words. The prophets often give this picture, you know, the people are wicked, but God's going to restore them, and, and, and they're going to be people that love to worship, that, that, that bring their sacrifices and their offerings with the right heart and with the right attitude. They are a people that love to worship. And one of the things I find interesting about the book of Revelation, and of course, you know, we, we often try to stay away from the book of Revelation because of the vivid language that is used. But just the continual worship scenes that appear in Revelation. In Revelation chapter 4, what is that chapter about? But everyone who's around the throne of God, worshiping God. In Revelation chapter 5, what is that chapter about? Everyone who stands around the throne worships God and the Lamb. In Revelation chapter 7, all of the redeemed from all of the ages worship God for all of eternity. They stand before Him day and night. They sing praises to Him. They worship in His temple in verse 15. They serve Him day and night. We could keep going with this throughout the book of Revelation as they sing songs of praise to God. They worship God. They magnify and they glorify God. Revelation 14, Revelation 15. They, the redeemed Israel, the saved, they love to worship. If we do not love to worship, if we do not take delight in the Lord, we will not enjoy heaven. Sometimes our view of heaven is so materialistic and personal. I've got a mansion waiting for me. I've got great things in store. I'm going to be there, right? It's really not the picture of heaven in the Bible. The picture of heaven is getting to enjoy the presence of God. That's the picture of heaven. That's exciting. 
And in Revelation 21 and 22, as there's this depiction uh, of the uh, of eternal life, when you read that chapter, you know a lot of people ask questions like, "Well, are the streets of gold literal? You know, are, are there really a, a one huge pearl that there's that there's a gate into heaven?" Well, I don't know. I mean, God can do that if He wants to know. I don't know. But the focus of Revelation 21 and 22 is seven times in different ways it says God will be there. Redeemed Israel is people that love to worship. Redeemed Israel are those who love the presence of the Lord and who want to worship Him. If you do not enjoy worship on this earth, you do not take pleasure in the Lord. Heaven will not be a joy. Because you see, that's what heaven is. Continual worship to our Lord and our Creator. What are some practical lessons that we can learn from Isaiah 58? All of our time belongs to God. How will we use that time to worship, to praise, and to honor Him? We must put aside our desire for our pleasure and what we want in order to glorify Him. Worship isn't about us. It's about our Maker. We must honor Him, not only on His day, but all day. Recognizing that we in Him we live and breathe and have our very being. We must realize that God is our provider. And we must worship Him with an attitude of thankfulness and gratefulness for physical and spiritual blessings. We must put ourselves on the back burner and focus on servitude, on serving God, and on serving one another. Isaiah 58 challenges us whether we love God and whether we're going to worship Him because of who He is. And may we be the people that love to worship, that love to draw close to Him, and the nearness of God is our good. Bow with me, please. Lord, you are our creator, you are our maker, you are our sustainer. We are unworthy to come before you, and yet you have given us such grace and mercy that we might spend eternity with you. We are so grateful. Lord, we ask that you give us the right heart as we worship you. That we long to come before you, that we long to praise you and magnify your name. Lord, we ask that you be with the brethren here at Jessup. Help them to be strengthened and encouraged. Help them to daily draw closer to you. Help them to, to bring others to you. Help them to daily grow stronger, to see you more clearly follow you more faithfully. Lord, we ask that wherever we are, 
we are a light for you and salt for you. That we shine in the midst of this dark world, pointing people to you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul discusses the resurrection. Many in Corinth were saying there is no such thing as a resurrection. And he shows them the folly of that particular thought. And he shows them the truth of the resurrection. And he illustrates how Jesus was raised from the dead and how we will be raised from the dead. He deals with various questions that they have asked. But then he closes, he closes the chapter in this way. He said, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when the perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality... Then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, the conclusion that Paul draws from the truth of the resurrection, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. In the end, we have ultimate victory. And I pray for you that you may recognize all of your toil, all of your efforts for the Lord are not in vain, but that victory will be ours in that final day. May we always abound us in the work of the Lord and lead others to Him. I thank you for your attention this week. I thank you for the encouragement that you have been to me. The song of invitation this morning uh, is 185, is that right? Okay, number, number 185. If there are any in the audience who need to take advantage uh, of being washed of their sins, then we urge you to come forward as we stand in sin. Who will follow Jesus standing for the rock?